Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. In this episode, we chat with Sam, whose curiosity led him to delve into the research on teams and how to create thriving teams. With a little encouragement, he then brought all of this together into a book called The Power of Teams. In our conversation, we explore what a team is, although we're all part of teams in different ways and we lead teams in different ways, but we explore what it is, we explore the humanity of teams and how we can navigate conflict and make the best use of the time that we have together. Sam, how are you? Welcome to Changing Conversations. Hi, I'm very good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, we're looking forward to, to speaking with you. Why don't we start um, by introducing or asking you to introduce a bit about yourself and, and what you do? Well, hi, my name's Sam Crome. Um, I live in Surrey in the south of England, and um, I'm mainly a deputy head teacher at a secondary school, Catholic secondary school. Uh, and one day a week, I work for our trust in the kind of director of education type role where I sort of try and help out with the schools and our trust. Um, I do some coaching as well. I'm a really passionate coach. Um, and that's really unlocked a lot of my kind of fervor for kind of teaching and, and developing people over the last few years. Um, and recently done a lot of research on the kind of evidence behind high performing teams and how thriving teams come together. And that culminated in writing a book, which has been a lot of fun. And uh, that's the and I'm a dad. I've got three kids as well, so <laughs> somehow squeeze them into <laughs> into life. <laughs> busy, busy man. Um, so you mentioned your book, which is about the power of teams. So why don't we start with that? What what drove you to pick that particular theme? Um, what kind of questions sparked your your interest to to dedicate the time and energy to writing a book? Yeah, that's a really good question and one that I wish I was asked more often, actually, because I found that I'd been doing a lot of leadership courses in my career and I was getting quite frustrated at the sort of similar pattern that they would follow and mainly focusing on the the I, you know, the, the individual person. Like, what kind of leader are you? What's your leadership style? Are you a manager or a leader? And after a while, I just thought, I'm sick of doing these kind of leadership surveys and questionnaires, which give me some random outcome of what kind of person I am. Um, and I wanted to know more about how people work together, because I knew that teamwork was quite a critical part of an organization's mission, but equally knew that it was often done really badly. And in my experience, been sort of turned off by really poor team meetings and group gatherings in the past. So... I just started reading. I'm, I'm a big sports fan, so I kind of started by looking at some like epic sports teams and looking at the Michael Jordan era in basketball, and and then that led me down the track of okay, that's great, but this is often very cult of personality stuff. So the next thing was, well, what does evidence say? Like, where where is some actual great research about what makes teams work really well together? Um, and then I just fell down this rabbit hole of looking at academic papers, books, visiting successful organisations. 
and um, wasn't actually planning to do anything with this apart from blog and use it to help my own teams. But um, at the time I was kind of working with my friend Jade Pierce, who wrote an amazing book about teaching. And um, she just said, oh, you just need to write a book on all the stuff you've done. And, and she kind of really encouraged me. So I didn't set out to write a book, but I ended up with one all the same. So um, it's been a really wonderful process of learning, I think. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right in what you say. Organisations were a collective of individuals, but it's, it's how we work together um, that, that can separate some really good work from other work that stumbles. So, you know, what, from your sense then, makes, what's the difference? What makes an effective team? What makes a team? Well, if you look at the research and the academic kind of language, you'd actually probably say that most things that we work in aren't actually teams. Uh, the, the academia kind of would say that what we usually have are working groups, which is people that kind of come together maybe decide a bunch of stuff and then go off and work on their own individual things. Um, but I don't wish to like change the narrative of teamwork in the, in the, in the country by saying, well, we're not actually teams. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the first thing. But the second thing is what makes a team or an effective team? Well, I think a team for me is a group of people that coalesce around some sort of shared purpose, shared goals. They're not just a group of people that happen to the same job role that get an individual list of things to go away and do. Um, they kind of have this shared mission, shared purpose, shared goals. Um, what makes an effective team now, this is this is subjective, I suppose, because you could look at some really toxic organisations and go, well, they performed really well for a year before they fell off a bit. So they were effective, even though there was a bit of a toxic level of control and morale there. But for me, a real thrive, and I've actually moved away from the term high performing, because I think it has too many negative connotations, actually. So for me, I call them kind of thriving teams, ones that te teams that achieve their objectives and whatever functional remit they, they do, they, they achieve that really well but also they have high levels of belonging and they retain their staff, they grow their staff, they learn together, there's a high level of morale. Um, so it's not just enough to achieve your aims, you have to bring everyone and grow everyone with you along, along the way. That's For me, that's a really effective team. It's interesting what you say about working groups and, and teams and I, I don't know in my personal experience, I can't speak for everybody, but I'm not always sure that working groups are particularly effective at achieving outcomes um, and working together. So it's interesting what you say about that kind of, that difference. And also what I was thinking about when you were talking there was around what Amy Edmondson calls teaming versus teams. And actually it's a way that we can, we can come together um, in quite kind of fluid ways. Would that be, is that something you've explored, something you've come across in the work that you've been doing? Yeah, I love that that phrase or that, that kind of verb to, you know, teaming, we are teaming together. Um, and I love all of Amy Evans's work. She's just a fantastic thinker and writer. Uh, but yeah, I guess the it reminds me of um, what my coaching mentor, Christian Van Neuver, used to say about coaching, that you want to get to the point where you're your organization has a coaching way of being whereby it's normal to ask first and not tell first and it's normal to listen before you interject that's what i kind of going forward teaming is that it's normal for an organization to take teamwork and working groups really seriously to the point where everyone understands why and how they work so that it's valued by everybody so it's, i guess it's a similar it's, it's almost like an ethos and not just a, a meeting if, if that makes sense yeah absolutely that does make sense um and 
yeah, like you, I'm sure we can all think of times we've been in teams or group gatherings where it hasn't been great. <laughs> um, and how frustrating that can be. It brings up kind of lots of emotions, doesn't it? Um, and I suppose that connects with with something that I wanted to pick up on, which was um, Mary Myatt, who wrote the foreword for your book, talks about the power of teams and the work that you've done in bringing all of that together. And you can see very clearly the amount of research and depth that you've gone into and how many things that you pull into that. But one of the things that she talks about is that you have deep humanity at the heart of what you've written about and the heart of the work that you've done. Um, so I'm curious about, well, what does that mean? Because that's quite a phrase, deep humanity at its heart. It's a great phrase. And um, I'm sure you were very proud to, <laughs> for her to attach those words to it. But what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? It feels like a lot to live up to in Mary Myers, is there? Firstly, I think Mary is just amazing. She's an amazing person and role model because... Obviously, I've read books by her like High Challenge, Low Threat, which is, you know, really putting staff at the forefront of what you're doing. She talks about us being humans first and professionals second. But equally, Mary's also responsible for a huge body, very technical, meaty, dense work in education. So I like the fact she bridges the two. You know, she's she's saying, hey, we're people. We have to be trusted and respected. But also there's a huge amount of very technical work to do. And sometimes people view those two things as being mutually exclusive. So uh, I think she's just amazing and wonderful. I was very lucky that she um, agreed to, to do the forward. The deep humanity at its heart, I think for me, essentially what it means is that we are in a people business and uh, people are unpredictable. They bring all sorts of stuff with them. Uh, to, to the school gates when they arrive in the morning, but also to the meeting in the classroom. And, and we're, we're very complex people, but our needs are, are actually relatively straightforward, really. Like if you think about our primary needs and through self-determination theory, we want, but we want to belong and we want to feel like we, what we're doing matters. So I think for me, yes, there are, there are very long chapters in my book about expertise and knowledge and learning and, 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 you know, how to tackle CPD in teams. But actually what's the, what I feel like is the heart of the book that runs all the way through, like the kind of the veins of the book, the arteries of the book is that you have to look after people and you have to care about people authentically, or there's no point shaping their expertise because they haven't committed fully to what you're doing. So it's just wasted anyway. Um, so that's, that's what I think Mary's kind of getting at is that we have this sort of shared values of, about this people first and you bring the people side with you and then they'll be able to do all the other things, all the technical bits to the best of their potential because you, you've kind of developed some really great belonging relationships with them. And, if you don't do those things, you can still have a functioning team. It's just everyone will be working at probably 50% of what they can really do. And who, who wants that? And who wants to come to work every day where they're not treated like someone who matters? Yeah. And I suppose it's easy sometimes to think of when we're thinking about teams, and maybe it's just my um, bias, is to think about leading teams. But actually, we are all also part of teams and we might be part of many different teams in in a day in a week um what have you learned about or how does how do those two parts interact like being in a team and how do we how do we support teams from the inside how do we contribute to that 
Well, first, it's really amazing how differently people can behave in different teams because of the culture of different teams. So I've said it before, I've seen uh, people go to one team and be a real high flyer in that team, be a real team player, fully invested, very values driven. And then I've, I've seen them in other meetings, and they're just checked out and they're not really contributing anything and they're actually being a bit difficult. So that, and that's how nebulous and, and, and unpredictable, as I was saying, four people are. So I think the first thing is you have to really, the organization that you work in has to ensure that that one team isn't an outlier compared to the others and everyone, all team leaders across the school or the organization invest a lot of time in teaming. So they, they understand what it means to, to start with values and vision and mission and purpose so that everyone that walks through your team meeting door is also invested in those things. So I think the organization needs to, to really get on top of, of teaming as an exercise. Otherwise, you will get these pockets of complete dysfunctionality, even within a very functional setting. Um, so that's the first thing. And secondly, I think we have to put the kind of call to action back on the team members because the team leader is important. But actually, what you really need is everyone moving in the same direction. And, you know, that kind of classic phrase, it's just the way we do things here in this team. This is how we work together. This is how we treat each other. So you have to hold, hold the team account uh, to account for, for their behaviours and their actions. But again, that all starts from a process of, right, who are we? What are our values? Let's agree them as a group. What do we think our shared mission is? Well, let's agree that now and, and then constantly narrate it and come back to it. And then if we fall short, we're agreeing now we're going to pull each other back out of that so that we're all moving in the same direction together. So there's so much, I guess, we're, we're coaches, aren't we? We'd say there's, there's a lot of contracting that goes on. At the start and ongoing in a team's life, and then that all comes around shared, um, shared mission and shared agreements. So I think um, once you do that as a team, it's really easy to for the team to kind of almost self-govern a little bit as well. Because like, hey, we all we all feel like we all matter. We're all we're all moving together here. Let's make sure we can. Um, not call each other out, but sometimes it is that. Sometimes it's support and put an arm around people, and sometimes it's like, hey. I know this is really important to you as well. And actually at the moment, you're you're not quite doing that. And that's what I try and talk about in the book is that actually there's there's lots of elements of that conflict and, and moving together where sometimes it can be uncomfortable. But if you create the right conditions, it just means everyone moves forward really purposefully. Yeah, I think you, you bring in a really helpful phrase almost for people to be able to use around contracting because actually sometimes we don't have the language to to the process you know that or maybe it feels a bit formal or it feels like somebody's taking the lead where they don't necessarily have the lead if although we could argue that but that idea of contracting I think is quite useful in the context of of groups in that way I think the the, the leader has a big role here and this is one of the ways you establish psychological safety to say to the group look my sort of pledge to you as the leader of this team is that I'm going to do this dot, 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 dot this year. And these are the values that, I, that are important to me. And I, hopefully you'll see them through my work. But if I don't do something that I say I'm going to do, or if my actions fall short of the values that I've just told you that I really believe in, then I want you to, to pull me up on it. And I want you to give me that feedback um, because we have busy, busy working days. We make thousands of micro decisions every day. Not every one of my decisions will be, uh, or behaviors will be exactly right. So I want you to trust me to be able to say to me, Sam, that wasn't quite what your, you know, your normal standard or what you profess 
to value. Um, and then when they do that, you then have to model that really constructively, even if it feels like a dagger, <laughs> a dagger in the chest. Um, but that, that humility starts from the leader, and then that should hopefully become normalized so that other people on the team could maybe, you know, feel about, think about doing that with each other as well. Couldn't agree more with that point about the, the safety amongst the team and the trust amongst the team to remember that the, the team is a collection of people. And just as people will change through time, teams can change through time. Um, just as people can have good phases and bad phases, so can a team. And I've, I have literally been there myself numerous times where, um, and, and you know you're winning when someone does come and, and call you out. You know, where can I have a word shut the door? And they'll say, to, you know, when we were making that decision, this happened, or you didn't really seem to take on board that point. And you need that because no one person, um, and I suppose I'm talking from the perspective of a, of a leader. But the other thing I wanted to pick up on there is the just the dynamics of a, of a team um, in relation to the different roles and how you mentioned, Sarah's picked up as well, we've all been part of it. The reason a lot of working groups, particularly if we call them short life, uh, are, are not as effective as some other teams that you've referenced already, it is that idea of purpose and, and roles. You know, so if you're part of a team that's got two months to review a policy, um, say that it's been reviewed and moved on, or if you're part of a team that is committed to raising attainment in mathematics, two very different types of teams. But I think wherever a team gets together, you know, the beauty of, a, of human beings is that we, we, if we're if we're honest, we we tend to disagree with each other at points, and actually that can be a good thing. So we mentioned conflict. Tell us about conflict. Should, should we welcome it within teams? Should we encourage it? How, how do we stop it overflowing at times and ensure we're still getting the best from the team? I think the, the normal attitude towards conflict in schools that I've worked at is that when you see it coming, you turn the car around and you drive in the opposite direction. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that conflict is kind of... It's just not a normal part of our society, is it, to kind of to have disagreements with people, I think. And that's spilled over into our working lives. And I think it's really natural if someone disagrees with you in a, in a meeting setting or even one to one, you get that kind of rise of adrenaline and that sort of fight or flight. You feel attacked. You feel it's like it's personal, even though you probably know it's not deep down. So I think it's kind of ingrained into us that conflict is bad and conflict is like, you know, the enemy of kind of alignment and, and kind of great teamwork. But actually, research doesn't show that at all. Um, and there's loads of research out there about how the best teams are the ones who manage conflict well. And they do that really by anticipating that conflict is inevitable. And it all goes back to the fact that if you're going to bother gathering a group of people together, they all have different views, different levels of experience, different expertise. So what's the use of not utilizing that or not engaging with those different views you may as well just send an email otherwise or write a bulletin every week and never see anybody so i think we know deep down that disagreements and sharing different views is important and actually the lifeblood of a team actually making progress and being effective which is why we hopefully are in teams but equally it doesn't change the fact that we often feel very nervous about the idea of, of just debating and discussing so i think the team has to has to say in advance look we will disagree on things when we're reviewing this project. You know, maybe we've just launched, you know, he's talked about mathematics attainment. Maybe we just launched a new a project we're, we're doing with ENI Maths and we're reviewing it one month later. And you say, look, we'll probably disagree about the way that we're going to run this, but it's really important that we listen to each other's views. 
and ask questions and, and probe a bit further so we're not just making a snap judgment about someone else's view and then responding too quickly. But then also that ultimately the sharing of these views that we're about to do is going to lead to a better product at the end for everybody. And it's kind of talking about essentially just narrating the fact that the, this, the conflict will move in, in the right direction. Now, there is kind of lots of research that looks at the difference between sort of relational conflict, which might be more personality-based, and then task conflict. I mean, all, all of the research shows that task conflict should be really, really healthy and productive. Relational conflict is a bit different because it might be that we have a disagreement about the way that we work generally, um, which is more personal than linked to a tangible task. And that might take a bit more ironing out and a bit more one-to-one uh, development but generally task conflict is good and it means that everyone in the room is actually contributing honestly and pooling their expertise we just have to find ways of normalizing it within our team and incentivizing people to bring their different views to the table and there are loads of different ways to do that and it kind of depends on the culture you've established in your team to begin with but to answer in short yes conflict is necessary and it's actually often really great as well <laughs> i think if, if there's a if there's enough trust amongst the team that you know you, it's, it's okay to disagree, I always prefer if people can back that up around evidence rather than just something that they have made up or they, or they believe, particularly when it comes to, I suppose, deep-rooted beliefs about children and young people, because that's that's the game that we're in. Um, I also think it's helpful if you're working within a team that, and you've, you've mentioned it, rather than go in and, you know, here are five decisions, what do you think of it? You know, let's go in and ask some questions and help arrive at the decision point, if at all possible. You think that takes people with you a bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, just to go back to your um, your first point, Adam Grant in his book, Think Again, which is really great, talks yeah. about normalising the phrase, how do you know in a team? And actually, yeah. if you if you contributed in the meeting, Billy, and I was like, yeah, but how do you know? That could sound a bit confrontational but actually if you if you anticipate that that phrase is going to be useful for the group and say they look there's no personal attack when someone asks you this it's just it's just a delving deeper for an objective knowledge-based or evidence-based response you just normalize the use of that question so i think again you could almost provide everyone with a like not a script because i'm not a big believer in like you know um formalizing everything but just saying look here are some phrases we might use when we're discussing and debating things and they're totally cool and totally normal things to say to elicit a, a deeper level of response um, so i think that's really really important um and yeah and then, and then from that point onwards hopefully you can those conversations will be actually enjoyable because you're you're enjoying the hearing from different people and, and, and making it a normal fun thing to do i think um adam grant is very wise on so many things i think he also says something and i can't remember it exactly but that we often go into conversations looking to prove that we're right rather than to to learn or to change our opinion. I can't quite remember the second part, but I think, yeah, that, that can often be the case, isn't it? We're all trying to prove that we've got the right idea or the right information and we've got the right kind of outcome rather than it being a learning conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he says that we should not only ask people their views, he says that we should seek a views that goes against ours so that we're, we're, we almost proactively ensure that we hear views that are different to our views so um yeah he's, he feels very strongly about that <laughs> yeah um and I guess some of that aligns to 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 coaching and the kind of thing that coaching can can offer and I'm, I'm curious about you know you talked about the complexity of 
humans and human relationships and dynamics and all of that. Um, and I'm wondering what role has coaching played for you in helping you to kind of learn and navigate and figure it all out? <laughs> the first building block that coaching taught me, as in having a coach and being coached, was that your own thinking is far more powerful than you give time for in your average week. And once you start practicing thinking, um, you, your brain goes to all sorts of places, sometimes sometimes really in-depth parts of your, your mind or your soul that you never thought you knew about. But um, I just don't think we give ourselves enough time and space to think and to ask questions of ourselves. And that's where a coach can come in handy. But my thinking also evolved over the last few years that you don't have to be sat one-to-one -one in a coaching meeting to embrace and enjoy the, the benefits of a coaching approach. And I write a bit about that in my book. Um, to be honest, I would have liked there to have been more coaching sections to my book, but then I actually thought that's a whole other book um, because I, I don't want to pay lip service to coaching. So I kind of almost don't go into it too much in this particular book, but I do talk about a coaching approach that teams can take whereby... It becomes, I said it a bit earlier on, really, that um, when someone's proposing something in a meeting, that the, the team, their mantra is ask, listen and ask first to try to really get to the heart of what that person's thinking. Because we know what it's like if we're sharing a, a, an idea in a meeting, a leadership meeting or a pastoral meeting or a department meeting actually we're probably putting ourselves out there quite a bit and we don't necessarily cover everything we wanted to say in the right way on the spot so the normal thing is we say something and someone immediately gives their opinion back that's just uh, that's 99 of my experiences in a meeting but to start building up and deliberately narrating with your team hey when someone proposes something we're going to ask first and we're going to listen and we're going to ask first and we're going to really get to the heart of what they're talking about before we share opinions that just unlocks everybody's thinking, not just the person speaking. So I think there's a lot of work that teams can do on that more informal day-to-day -day coaching approach. And I try to do that as a line manager. So people come to me, this is, has just happened, what shall I do? Well, you know, let's talk through the circumstances so far. And then and you, you kind of go into kind of, kind of coach mode. So I think but ultimately that unlocks people's best thinking and it, and it helps them grow as well. Um, and it's not exactly the same thing, but when I went to um, Dr. Colvon uh, Atwell's school, uh, he's the, he writes The Thinking School. I went to his school a few years ago, and he said that without autonomy, you leave your brain at home. Um, and he wasn't just talking about you know, blanket autonomy, everyone do what they like, but he was basically talking about a culture where leaders tell everyone what to do. He's like, you may as well not bring your brain to work because you just know you'll be fed the kind of instructions for the day so he really believes in that kind of coaching approach all the time where you listen and you ask so that people actively bring their best thinking to those situations knowing that they will be will be quizzed in a in a, in a sort of healthy productive way okay and that, that's pretty much the next question i was going to ask you that you've you've answered around you know we, time is often the barrier in in education it's a barrier to everything it's not enough time um, and we can't make more time, but we can use the time that we have really well. And you've you've talked there about how that coaching approach can help us to use the time that we have together really well by by opening up our thinking. Are there any other things that we can be mindful of um, when we come together to help us get the most out of the time that we have? 
Well, yeah, you kind of said it already. We, depending on the different teams we are involved in in our school or organisation, some of those might only meet once a half term, like once every six or eight weeks. Some meet more than that, which is obviously great for them. But it's basically like gold dust when you meet together. So you have to make sure that when you, like I said earlier, when you gather together this diverse group of people to meet, it has to have a purpose at the heart of the meeting. So it's just about using the time you've got as effectively as possible. So my advice for team leaders would be learn together in that time that you've got. Do something where you actually you share knowledge, you learn something, you, you grow together as a group because that's purposeful. It opens up dialogue. Um, I think it increases things like sort of trust between the groups. They're sharing and they're learning as a group. And then try to keep the purpose, the most purpose-filled aspects of your work as a team for discussion in those meetings. You might refer to the fact there's some admin bits coming up, but people can go and read about that afterwards if you've just signposted to it. But while you're together in that room, it's purpose, 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 start, middle and end of that meeting. So that the time you're together, you're really utilising that, that pool of expertise and energy. Otherwise, you've just missed a massive opportunity and no one wants to come to the next meeting. <laughs> uh, reflecting back on the humanity element that you mentioned earlier, I've certainly found over the years that I'm guilty of maybe not every second is accounted for with, uh, you know, moving things forward in a positive direction. Sometimes it's just being in a room with other humans and, and reading the room and realising that people maybe just need the, the good biscuits to come out the cupboard instead of the plain digestives. And, you know, the odd anecdote, actually, because the, the pace we work at isn't it, can be frantic at times. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think once you've got a culture of purposeful meetings, people come to the meeting feeling good in anticipation of a good meeting. So it makes them more likely to sit down and just do everything you just described there, Billy, which is to to share and to open up. But if, if the culture is the meetings are normally a waste of time, you don't really feel like doing that. You just want to get the meeting over with. So you have to you have to build purpose even just to do that those things there which sound basic but actually they're not um, people need the right conditions to to share i think definitely complicated business thinking then about about the book um and i believe that you have a blog where you share your reflections of what you've read so you know it, what would be your hope if someone was to have some takeaways from your book well I'm not asking you to sum your book in two minutes but uh, what do you think would be the main takeaways? Yeah, firstly, I just have to say that the blog project was amazing. So I started that during kind of lockdown. And what I was really fed up with, I don't know if you experienced this as well, like we talked about Adam Grant's book earlier on. I was just, I'm a bit of a book machine and I just devour, um, well, I love fiction, I love classic novels, but I devour nonfiction. And I was just getting really tired. I had this moment, it was a Christmas holidays, and I was telling a friend about a book that I just read. It probably was one of those books by Adam Grant or someone like that. And when they asked me, they were like a good listener, and they were asked me some probing questions about the book, and I just couldn't remember anything apart from like a, the headline that you could read on the back of the book. And I was like, oh, I've got, to, I've got to start recording this. So I started recording on my notes section of my phone, um, but I was getting a bit lazy. So then I was like, right, if I do a blog that's public... 
I'll be forced into recording what I'm reading really meaningfully. So I, I decided a set format for every blog and it's, to be honest, I've really neglected it since I started to write my own book. But um, what I found was that I was dipping back into those book reviews all the time for my own, when I was delivering CPD or working with teams. Um, so I'd really recommend it actually to people. If you want to sort of make yourself more accountable for how you actually transform reading into something actionable, um, that's my top tip. Um <laughs> my book well the three takeaways i think the first takeaway would be that um even if you didn't hold this view before you read the book that it's a people business and that's the bit you've got to focus on to begin with um and like we've said that you use that word humanity from mary it's that people are complex and actually it's not totally Un intangible there are loads of actual things we can do to help guide people and make them feel a sense of belonging it's not a woolly subject anymore there's tons of evidence about how we increase levels of belonging in the group so there is a, not a route map because people are more complicated than that but if you're unsure about how to really get to the heart of people there are things you can do so i think that's a, that would be a takeaway um the second takeaway from the book i think is that we have lots to learn from other sectors as well as our own. Um, so I would say probably like 50% of my book is about other things, other places, and I try to then synthesize that down to education. So I think there's kind of something for everybody in the book. And I really hope people agree that we are intelligent enough to look at another sector and go, well, how they do things like this? Our sector is a bit different, but we can still take the best kind of things we've learned from that here. So that's maybe the second thing. And the third thing is, is just that we are very intellectually curious and stimulated by development. And I think a lot of the book is about how do we develop and grow and move forward? Because I was fed, of, fed up of working in teams that just make stuff and do stuff. I want to be part of teams that learn and grow. Um, so and I think there's loads of parts of the book that focus on learning and development. It's like a, almost like the superpower for teams Teams love working together when they learn together and develop together. So I think that was a really great discovery, actually, for me as I was as I was researching the book in the first place. Yeah, sounds good, um, and I look forward to reading it. Um, the the point you make about other other types of teams, uh, yeah, I've, I've sent a letter to Ange Potokoglu to see if I can come and look at how he's so quickly developed his new uh, football club. Um, I think when you talk about teams and some of the elements, it's interesting that you referenced sport earlier. There's, there's so much to be learned, not just from successful sporting teams, but out in business and elsewhere. But congratulations to you for putting together your book, especially um, as busy as you are in, in the day job and the family job. Um, and thanks for chatting with us today. But before we let you go, we always end with a couple of questions. So we, we spoke about your book. We spoke about how you, like Sarah and myself, are a book machine. Um, so what are you reading at the moment? Okay, I'm going to do like an amazing name drop here because um, um, in my research, so as we've talked already today, I've, I've, I read a lot of Amy Edmonds. 
Robinson, and she has from time to time given me some really great advice. Um, I've kind of had a couple of chats with her, and she's awesome. And her new book, The Right Kind of Wrong, came out the same day as my book, um, which felt like a really cool kind of moment for me because she's been such an inspiration. And for her work to, to kind of be aligned with my work and come out the same day was, was really, really great. So I've, I've been reading that at the moment, The Right Kind of Wrong by Amy Anderson, and that is about how we can fail better. Um, and it's, it's a very complicated subject, but essentially it's the idea that um, we should normalize failure as being an inev inevitable small road bumps. Um, and they actually help us to grow and develop. And too often people sweep mistakes and failure under the carpet instead of viewing them as a natural learning tool. So that's, um, yeah, I'm really excited about that book. And if I get time, I'll do a blog on it. <laughs> I actually have her book sitting over there and your book is sitting next to me here so there you go that's that's what it looks like in in my office at the moment um I'm I'm going to be cheeky and stick stick another question in here um you talked about being intellectually curious there and I wonder um we we started the conversation like what was the question that sparked the the book what is it you're currently intellectually curious about well, um, there's still loads of teeming books that I haven't managed to read by some amazing thinkers like uh, Eduardo Salas uh, and Tannenbaum and just loads of Hackman, just loads of like amazing researchers from the last sort of 50 years in teams. So there's, there's still a lot I need to unpick. But now that I'm working in a trust... I was like, well, I thought school teams were complicated. And now, <laughs> and now you've got multi-academy trusts who are bringing together teams where they're from representatives from many schools and some of them want to be there and some of them don't want to be there. So um, I'm going to continue reading about teams holistically, but also just really scratching my brain about how we help trusts and other other groups or collaborative groups across schools because there are lots of weird and wonderful networks in the education world how we help them to to work as best they can with what they have which is um teams that are not very traditional so that's kind of a, a big yeah big thing for me i think over the next couple of years mm, be fascinating area to explore <laughs> um so our final question is do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave listeners with I don't have a pithy quote to leave you with, um, but I'm not. A very, I don't think I'm a very sound, whitey person anyway. But I guess my the, the reason that I feel quite well qualified to talk about teams is that I genuinely thought teams were a waste of time in the early part of my career, and I just all I saw was sort of well-meaning dysfunction among teams, you know. And so, what the message I would leave people with is if. If you're feeling like, actually, do I really need to learn more about the way that teams work together? I would say, yes, you absolutely do, because you're members of many teams. You will probably lead teams. And there's just a huge, well, I guess a cheesy end ending, but there's a huge power behind teams. You know, Patrick Lencioni says that the teamwork remains the ultimate competitive advantage when we look for all of our gains, our marginal gains. And I genuinely believe that we already team a lot. We just don't do it very effectively. So I think that's what I would leave leave the listeners with is that there's there's a huge amount of gain to be had there on a on a humanistic level, on a you know productivity level. Um, there's there's no there's no area that te good teaming can't um, enhance in your organisation. Yeah, we can make it even cheesier and say no man is an island. You know, <laughs> 
Listen, thank you, Sam, for giving up time at the end of a very busy day in a very busy life to share the, the depth of knowledge and wisdom that you have um, and give us an insight into your book, which is The Power of Teams. And we will make sure that people know from the show notes how they can connect with you on social media. And we'll make sure that the name of your book is there as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. That was really, really good fun. So um, yeah, I hope, uh, hope it was useful for the listeners as well. But thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform, sharing on social media, or leave us a review. Thanks again.